Talks, a chat with Finance Malta, is the podcast series that gives you short, thoughtful and regular insights from leading experts of the financial services industry. I'm Vanessa McDonald. Welcome. Professor Manili, um you gave your first climate change lecture back in 1984. And when you were talking, uh, doing a recording for COP26 in Glasgow, which you did not attend, you commented that you would reach the same conclusion then as today. Does society really want to change to avoid the cost of climate change or to save um, all the things that are happening now? Your conclusion was that policies need pricing and unfortunately that governments are not ready to do that. Has anything changed since then? Um, are there any signs? Or are there any glimmers of hope? Well, I, I, I think there are definitely glimmers of hope. Uh, I began doing research into climate change in the late 70s at Harvard on uh, land planning and reforestation. And one got very depressed then. Uh, you know, we were still only a few years after Earth Day and Rachel Carson and all of that. And I moved into the city and had that debate in 84, as you say. And we, we conclude then society wasn't wasn't likely to want to pay the price. Um, and we're analysts in, in the city of London and we're really quite boring, but if you think about it, the theory that we have about uh, global warming, it was from Arrhenius in 1890, smokestacks are the classic negative externality, and uh, what you're normally supposed to do with that is to price it. So we knew all of that in 84, uh, and the estimates that we came up with were in the region today, today's prices of something between about 1,000 and 2,000 uh, euros a person. Uh, per year for the next 30 years. And you'll, you've never really heard that on radio or television. Um, and we come at it in, in a variety of ways. We did an enormous study between 2005 and 2007 called the London Accord. We had 110, 20 researchers from, third, no, sorry, from 24 investment banks. And we produced an 800-page booklet on the investability and said if society could keep the price of carbon up above, uh, well, between 30 and sort of uh, 75 euros a ton, which when you think back then, put it up about where it is now, around 80 euros a ton, um, it, it would happen. Um, now, if you take, uh, I can only do British numbers, I should, have, I should have researched my Maltese numbers, but in Britain, depending on how you estimate it, the average Britain emits between 8 and 12 tons of carbon per year. So call it 10 tons for simplicity. Current price of carbon is, is uh, 80 euros or 80 pounds, so that's 800 pounds of Britain. Uh, but that only covers 50% of their emissions, so it should really be 1,600 and going down. So that gets you to your you know, 800 to 1,600 there. Uh, Nick Stern did a very famous review in Britain where he concluded uh, that it was between 1% and 2% of GDP, probably more towards the 2%. And guess what? That gets you to 800 to 1,600 pounds of Britain. So it kind of doesn't matter where you go at it. You're not The going, numbers are, exactly, yeah, the results are the same. You're not going to get, you're not going to stop climate change just by turning your cattle off or, or doing a bit of recycling. Um, it's, it's material changes to the infrastructure. We need only new energy systems whole new transportation systems, whole new ways of creating cement, whole new ways of dealing with commercial and residential buildings. And that gets you again across Europe up to about 80% of our emissions. And the last 20% is agriculture, and I have no idea how we'll deal with that. That's a, that's a particularly tough one. But you can see most of it happening. So where are the signs of hope? Well, the first thing is, uh, despite a bouncy start, uh, the carbon markets are working. And I, I, your listeners, I'd like to remind them that 
in the 90s, in 1992, the US EPA uh, launched the sulfur dioxide and nitrogen oxide trading schemes, SOX and NOx, and expected emissions to drop by about 25% over 10 years. In, in the end, they actually, in four years, in 1996, had dropped by 50%. And that's why America was so keen, analytically, going into COP3 in Kyoto uh, with carbon uh, pricing being the answer. It solved the acid rain. Now it was going to solve the, the biggest problem of all. And frankly, people in the financial market should be going, that's the right thing to do, uh, and focus on the markets rather than perhaps on uh, ticking ESG measures or things like that for carbon. Okay, so that market uh, bounced around, and oddly, around the same time as Brexit in 2016, finally firmed up as the Europeans uh, stopped issuing too many permits. And price rose to, as I say, the levels around the 80 mark today. And that's been fantastic. And you can see, really, from 2016, carbon emissions across Europe dropping markedly. And it is not due to awareness. It is due to the fact that it costs these companies a lot to issue it. Uh, the other thing that's exciting is China came in just under two years ago. Uh, and so now, 23% of global emissions are in a credible carbon trading system. And as long as we keep reducing the number of permits between now and 2050, and if it is zero em emitted permits in 2050, we can largely get there. We, we, we can quibble around the edges, but it's an achievable target. Uh, and those 23% roughly cover only 50% of their own nation. So if, we, if that was to double, that would bring us up to 46%. And if we could get America and India in, we're up in well into the 80s. And I, I'm never going to say it's a solved problem, but you begin to see as an economist the outlines of how that would be fixed. Second problem, though, that we face is, the, um, is government policy. And uh, back in uh, 2005, six, I proposed something called policy performance bonds. And these were bonds that were like an inflation-linked bond. And remember, controlling inflation is a government policy. We will keep inflation at 2%. Great. What if you don't? Well, this bond pays interest above 2% uh, based on inflation. So if inflation is 5%, minus 2, we'll pay 3%. It's 8%, we pay 6 etc. So you know the government is going to want to control inflation. And if it fails to do so, you will get some compensation. <clears throat> and you don't really care how it does it. It's their problem. And you, they don't have to spend the inflation-linked bond on anti-inflation things. <laughs> uh, so the proposal I had was, why didn't we do the same thing with carbon? Um, and so if you were to take something like uh, net zero 2050, you would say for every percentage point in 2050 or over uh, your, your target, you would pay that on the bond and you could straight line that down. Um, with the assistance, to, to be honest, of the French government, we had a real coup in 2015 when the Prime Minister's office decided to support a debate around this subject. In 2016, the French government asked me to write a book, and I wrote a book which was published in 2017. And then in 2018, we saw these bonds coming. Uh, Danone issued one uh, in 2018, Louis Dreyfus in 2018, and through my Italian connections, uh, Eno also issued a, a bond. So it's been fantastic. But I wasn't after the corporates. Uh, and that corporate market has grown, I believe, last year was around 110 billion. And uh, it's about, I think, about 40% of the issued bond market. Uh, just to give you, your readers a bit of a flavor for, for the numbers, uh, last year we had about 835 million, I believe, euros 
issued in uh, carbon uh, emission uh, credits. So that was that gives you scale there, and the entire voluntary carbon market is only about two two point one billion. So the big money is in these big things, and these are the boring things that you don't stand on a soapbox and you don't glue your hand to the, to the roadway. Uh, <laughs> these are the things that I believe uh, not only can make a dis difference, but are starting to. And thus my biggest coup, uh, I shouldn't say my, it's a whole team effort, uh, was last year in March, the government of Chile contacted us in 2021 and they issued a bond and I'll just outline for your readers how it works. So this is not a co corporate bond, but actually a sovereign An bond? An actual sovereign bond. Wow. <laughs> uh, it's a $2 billion bond. It's four times oversubscribed, and it's against two targets. Uh, the first target is they need to get, by 2030, uh, they need to reduce their overall emissions from, I believe it's 112.3 megatons to 95, and they need to increase the share of renewables from 45% to 60%. Uh, and if they fail uh, to do that by 2030, they'll be paying an extra 250 basis points, so another 2.5%, which is kind of eye-watering for the next 12 years. And there's a straight-lining element to it between now and 2030. So everybody in Chile uh, now knows the government is serious. And instead of having to hedge their bets by investing in fossil fuels, they can hedge by buying the bond. And it's done what you'd expect. It's really revitalized investment in renewables and green uh, in Chile. And I'm very pleased to say that the government of Uruguay, with uh, no assistance from us, uh, did pretty much the same thing. And they added something which I wrote about uh, about 15, 16 years ago. They added a forestry component. So they've got uh, a forestry target as well. They are not allowed to reduce their extent of forestry over the life of the bond. Um, that bond was for 1.5 billion, and it was about one and a half times oversubscribed. So we, you know, in, last year we had a 3.5 billion sovereign uh, policy performance, or sometimes called sustainability-linked bonds, so sovereign sustainability-linked bonds, which were 65% bigger than the voluntary carbon market, which has been trying to get off the ground for 30 years. I'm not against voluntary carbon, I'm just very proud, that's all. It's um, quite an achievement. One of the things that I did pick up from your YouTube video is that you you don't seem to be terribly convinced when it comes to corporates, though. Um, there seem to be so many systems uh, by which they determine what their ESG ranking is and so on. And in spite of the taxonomy issued by the European Central Bank, you still seem to be a little bit sceptical. Yeah, it's a... Well, it, it's, uh, I am skeptical, and for those who like more detail, uh, MIT began a project about four or five years ago uh, about ESG, and I think the title is ESG-Aggregate Confusion. Um, so I think that kind of tells you what it is. There's a lot of material there. But to, to unpick ESG, uh, and I've been around in that field for ages, it, it began really uh, as, a, as an issue called uh, extra financial. So it was things that weren't financial, but they were numbers. And of course, the minute you have numbers, if I say, well, um, you know, Vanessa produces a widget um, for 10 euros, but she emits a ton of carbon in doing so. Michael produces a widget for 5 euros, but emits 2 tons. You still have to make the decision. In other words, you have to put a price on it because you can't, you can't run it like that. So I unpick ESG this way. The G, governance stuff, all very interesting. Most of the stuff that's measured, though, has not really been statistically proven. So we'll leave that for another day.
governance indices have got a lot of problems. The S, the social bit, which is really avoiding doing bad things other than environmental, so uh, mistreatment of women, child labor, um, all that, I, I believe that there's a lot of mileage in that. I, I think that's an area that should be tracked because it's very difficult to put into something. And a lot of these come out of the SDGs anyway. Yeah, so. uh, which I'm a, well, I'm a big fan of, of the SDG movement. I, I just wish we hadn't written 17 no. of them. <laughs> um, yeah. So now we turn to E. And when most people talk about ESG, they're talking about E. And when they're talking about E, they're really talking about C. They're really just talking about carbon. Um, so I don't know why I would want a, a major accounting firm crawling over my place trying to count carbon. They're not, they're not scientists. They're not engineers. Um, and all they're going to do is put it in the annual report. Um, if I'm paying a lot of money for carbon, I'll get it down, which is just what we said is happening in Europe. They're getting it down not because of the reporting and the taxonomy or anything, but because it's costing them money. Um, and that's what you should do with a pollutant that you can identify. So I would, frankly, leave C alone out of it and work on the policy performance bonds, which means government can't get out of it, and functioning carbon markets that get tighter and tighter. However, E is not just C, uh, and there are other areas uh, forestry might be amenable to markets. Water, probably not. I think from memory, there are about 235 major water basins around the world. Those are all probably local marketing issues, and many of them are in border areas, so there might be some very good ESG tracking that's uh, needed for that. Um, when it comes to things like biodiversity, I'm, oddly, it's going to sound strange, I'm not a fan at all of TEEB and the other pricing mechanisms. I think it's like trying to put a price on your heart. Um, what we need to do there is uh, corridors, as, we've, as has been proven with the elephants in Southern Africa, and then later the elephants in India, when we were working on that at IFAL, marine set-asides uh, and reserves. That's the way to do it. Uh, in America, the wetlands has been a great thing, which has just been simply, if you want to use a, you know, an acre of wetland, you have, to, you have to retire too, kind of thing. Um, and I think those sorts of set-asides are there for that. But C, definitely not. Forestry, probably not. Uh, and then some other areas, and then recognize what doesn't really fit in the system. Uh, the European taxonomy is already in contention with the uh, with the British one, which is already in contention with the Americans and what they want to do, and it's full of contradictions uh, in, in the sense of governments actually implicitly telling you what to do while claiming they're not a good example, which everybody brings up being nuclear. So is nuclear green or not green? Well, it's green if climate change is your big issue. It's not green if you have fears of a radioactive release. And we don't have a very good record on that. So <laughs> what is green is the question. And if we're gonna use market forces for good, uh, we have to put our emphasis on it. And I think we in the financial services industry, which is meeting here tomorrow in Malta, uh, need to be promoting market-based forces where appropriate and then policing our systems. So, I, I, for example, in the voluntary carbon markets, which are full of scams, you know, we are not being, I, I think, as honest about the state of them as we should be. Um, so, but there is glimmer of hope. Definitely. Oh, good. <laughs> Definitely. And last year was a very good year for me, anyway, in, in these bond issues. And I and I think if more governments copy it, I'd, I'd be thrilled if the government of Malta were to consider it. Uh, it's you know it's a simple mechanism, but it really it really. Uh, makes a difference. You heard it here first. Thank you very much, Professor. That's all for today. Subscribe now to the FinTalks and follow Finance Malta on all social media platforms to stay updated with all our activities. Till the next podcast.